When I lived uh, outside of St. Petersburg, Florida, and I was maybe 10 years old, my best friend lived nine houses down the block. Those were the days that most of you grew up with, but our kids will never know. Meaning, you'd run up and down the street, you'd knock on doors, and you'd say, can you play football, can you play army, can you play games? And that's how we were entertained. And then a mother would always come screaming down the street at a particular hour, either when the sun had set or it was time for dinner or homework or they rang a bell and we'd come inside. And that's how our lives worked. My best friend who lived up the street was a Catholic boy named Damien. He was very sweet. He had an older sister, a twin sister, and a younger sister. So he was the only boy in the house. So needless to say, I was a very welcome addition to his life and he to mine. We hung out all the time, every summer. We didn't go to camp, neither of us. We just spent time together. And every day after school, we'd do our homework and spend time together. Damien, being the only boy, got a lot of special things in his house. And when he was about 10 years old, he came home, running down the street, actually pulled down the street, by this giant black Labrador. And he's holding the leash. I asked, who is this? And he said, this is my new dog, Duke. My dad bought it for me, and he's mine. I'm in charge of him. I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. We had a dog. I grew up with a family dog since I was born. His name was Noah, of course, the Jewish house. We got him on Parshat Noah, which is how he got his name Noah. But he was our family dog. But Damien had his own dog, and I had the family dog, the standard poodle. So... I turned to my father like two days later, realizing that all the activities we were doing, whether it's sports or whether it's playing army, whatever, was all based around something with the dog, how it fit in. I wanted to have ownership of our dog. So I turned to my mom and dad and I said, look, I know Noah is a, is a family dog, but I want to be in charge of him. I want to own him. So my father started laughing. You know, what do you want to own him for? Damien has this dog. I want to own my dog. I want to own a dog. I think it's only fair that I can own it. And I'm up to the responsibility. I can take care of everything that needs to be taken care of. There's no worries. Trust me. So my parents said, okay, you can own the dog. So I was even a little Germanic in those days. So I went to my mother's IBM typewriter. I remember it vividly. And I typed up a contract. They didn't ask me to do this. I did this. Transferring ownership of the dog to me. So I pulled the paper out, replete with typos and grammatical errors, gave it to my father, who I think was doing everything in his power not to crack up laughing. And it had two so lines for signature, mine and his. And I signed it, and he signed it. And as he handed over the paper back to me, he looked me in the eyes and he said to me, be careful what you wish for, little boy. Just like that. Be careful what you wish for, little boy. Well, I owned the dog for three weeks. Because in three weeks, I forfeited all three weeks of my allowance because I had to use it to pay for dog food. Because my father said, he's your dog. you got to feed him. I got no sleep in those three weeks because it was at 6.30 in the morning, normally when my mother was way up by then, that she would give me a little jostle on the shoulder and say, it's time to walk your dog. <laughs> and... Any grooming responsibilities, any medicine, any of those things got garnished from my allowances, and I had to figure out a way that I was eventually going to make some profit here. It was about the time of my bar mitzvah, I finally saw me getting out of the red and back into the black. 
So I turned to my father and I said to him, with my tail between my legs, no pun intended, look, I, I can't do it anymore. I don't want to own the dog. I want to play with the dog. I want to have the dog, but I don't want to be responsible for all of the dog. My father went into his bedroom and took off the dresser, the contract. He ripped it up, gave me a kiss and laughed, patted me on the head and said, be careful what you wish for. As kids and as adults, we wish for things all the time. We want things. And most of the things we want are obviously things we don't have. I have people who come into my office who talk in deep dissatisfaction in their marriages. I want to be with that person, not with this person. That person is so much prettier. That person is so much nicer. That person does X, Y, and Z, and my spouse doesn't. And every time I hear that in my office, all I think in my head is my father's lesson. Be careful what you wish for. I think of people who come into my office and tell me, Rabbi, I am busting my hump, working so hard, 70, 80 hours a week, and I can barely make my house payments. I want what they have. Those people who live in Alpine in that $17 million mansion, I want that. Then my life would be fine. And I think about that lesson that my father gave me. He patted my head and said, be careful what you wish for. Because I know that family, and I know them well. And they've been in my office too. And they've sat down and they've said to me, Rabbi, I don't want the burdens of this house. I don't want the burdens of my relationships. I don't want the burdens of my business or my job. I just want health for my family. I want what that family has who's working 80 hours a week and just appreciates all that they have. So wherever we are, it always seems that we're wanting something else. It made it into the top ten. For me, it's the most challenging of all of the Aserat Adibrot, of all of the Ten Commandments. It's the number tenth. Lo tachmod et eshet reecha. You shall not cover, uh, covet rather, the wife of your neighbor, the spouse of your neighbor. That's not only talking about issues of infidelity. But it's talking about wanting something of someone else's and not learning to appreciate what you have and not realizing that sometimes we have to be careful what we wish for. I share all of this with you on this Shabbat because as we tune in on the radios and change the channels on our televisions, we can't help but be aware of this 1989 moment that is happening again in the Middle East. In 1989, the Berlin Wall fell, and communism, basically as we knew it, continued to crumble just like the concrete of that wall. And now it's a thing of the past. And we can't help but think that this small uprising in Tunis, which then gave birth to the hope and dreams of a people in Egypt, has now done the exact same thing. Has now opened doors has now created possibilities, has now brought a world of democracy to something that was a dictatorship since before most of you in this room, including myself, were even born. An idea where people weren't given the idea of freedom of press, freedom of choice, freedom of speech, and seeing this entire region pivot, pivot totally to this level of democracy that it's never heard of or seen before. 
Many of you read the paper this morning. You saw that there were protests today in Yemen, and there were protests today in Algeria, and there'll be protests tomorrow in Syria and Jordan. Mark my words. The only thing I can predict is how those governments and how those people will react. Meaning, will they use force on their people? Will they ban all newscasts? Will they stop Twitter and Facebook? Will they allow these people to have a free voice like Mubarak did? And all I can help but think of in my mind is while at one time I passionately stand with the people in Tahrir Square who are calling for their democracy and I applaud with them and I stand with them for that expression of their independence and their rights in a peaceful manner, I think to myself at times, be careful what you wish for. Not to say that they shouldn't be protesting. Not to say that they shouldn't be demanding for their democracy, but to realize that the pivot from point A to point C needs a point B in the middle to make the pivot successful. I want to jog your memories historically to three things, three places where choice became problematic. Two in the Arab world and one in the Jewish world. The first had to do with our unilateral withdrawal from Gaza, where shortly after, from that time, President George Bush and Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice passionately pushed for free democratic elections in Gaza, while many were absolutely opposed to it, including our current president at the time. Was absolutely opposed to the free elections in Gaza. Why? Because they were afraid that the democracy could bring tyranny to power. And indeed it did. In Gaza today, we have a Hamas-run government. A government that is forsworn to the destruction, annihilation, and lack of recognition of the state of Israel and to terrorism and resistance at all costs. A government that endorses and enables more than 7,000 rockets to fly over its borders to land indiscriminately in playgrounds, in nursing homes, and in living rooms. This can be a challenge with democracy when you go immediately from tyranny to freedom of choice. We see the exact same example happening right now in Israel's border to its north, in Lebanon, where Hezbollah has been given such a stronghold. And by the way, it shares some of the very same doctrines as Hamas, as it has sworn off any recognition of the state of Israel, any negotiation with the state of Israel, and has sworn to its destruction and annihilation, and not over border disputes, just over its existence. Now Hezbollah has been so entrenched in the Lebanese government that if it pulls out, which it did, the entire government can topple. That is one of the challenges, again, of democracy and allowing tyrants those who are absolutely subscribed to the idea of terrorism to have that freedom. So allow me to give you the Jewish example of well. In a short, brief, but I think accurate history, Jewish people are slaves under Pharaoh in Egypt. They are beaten, they are tortured, they are given inadequate wages and barely enough food to survive as they build palaces and pyramids for the Pharaoh. Moses, a leader of the Jewish people, comes to Pharaoh and says, 
let my people go. After plagues and negotiations, he's successful. The Israelites make an exodus that's nothing less than miraculous as they cross through the Sea of Reeds and the Egyptians are swallowed up in the water afterwards. And then the Israelites spend the beginning of a 40-year journey where the vistas never seem to change, marking any progress in each step, where they have tired feet, where they have sore backs, where they have crying babies, and it's hot as can be. And all of them turn to Moses, their leader, and say, why did you take us out of Egypt? It was so much better there. We didn't have to worry if we were going to get water. We knew we'd be beaten, but we knew what our job was every day. Here we're on a journey to nowhere, to no man's land. It was better there. All I can think about, and the case of Gaza, the case of Lebanon, even the case of the Torah, Lahavdil, is that quote that my father patted me on my head with when I was 10 years old. Be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you wish for. It's really easy for any and all of us to sit and dream about the greener pastures in our neighbor's yard. To sit and dream about the opportunities that are available to the other, but not to us. That's an easy thing to do. The hard thing to do is to realize what it took to make that pasture green. What it took to make that availability theirs. And so many times, especially in today's society, where we are predisposed to an idea of instant gratification because of the warp speed of technology and of media and of all of the mediums of communication sharing with us. We sometimes go from point A to point C or even D, skipping over the intermediate points. This is a absolutely watershed moment for the entire world and especially for the Middle East. We hope it's a moment of evolution and not revolution. We hope it's a moment of opportunity and of possibility, of dreams that can be brought to reality as opposed to tyranny and hate and chaos. But on my bracha, my moment this Shabbat with all of you, I want to say to the Egyptian people, be careful what we wish for. Be careful and that, of course, we should break the chains of bondage and oppression. No one is standing on any bima encouraging that to happen for any people. But to remind them that the freedom that we celebrate and continue to wrestle with today, continue to be challenged with in this country today, wasn't born overnight. It's not a system that happens in a plug-and-play environment. It's a system that takes time, that takes change, that takes patience, that takes compromise, that takes tolerance, that takes understanding, that takes incredible compassion. Most of all, it takes time. Nothing would make me, my Zionist neighbors, my homeland of Israel, all of you happier than to see an Egypt with a free press, with freedom for workers, with a growing and healthy economy, with collaboration and communication with the United States, with Israel and other Western countries, and with its Arab neighbors and brethren. Nothing would make any of us happier. But remember all of those ingredients that are necessary to get us from point A to point B 
and then from point B to point C. Because otherwise, we'll just turn back contracts, turn back the dial, and say it looks so much better on the other side without appreciating all that we wish for. It's a lesson for each of us, not only for countries that are 5,000 miles away. A lesson for all of us as we covet, as we wrestle with what we want, as we dream of what we need, and the tolls that come with it. May this be a Shabbat in which the change that happens surrounding our homeland of Israel be a change where all the points are hit properly and all of us can celebrate the freedom of Israel and all of its neighbors and its recognition and its celebration so that all that they wish for is exactly what they wanted and exactly what they achieve. Amen.